Hello, and welcome to Built In, the FMI podcast for the built environment. I'm Scott Winstead, president of FMI Consulting. Welcome to our masterclass on ownership transfer and management succession. Today, we're going to be talking with Drew Hancock and Mike Lancaster from Frank L. Bloom Construction. We're going to have a conversation today with Mike and Drew about what drove their success. What lessons did they learn? What counsel would they provide to other clients? So just to give a little bit of context, back then in 2006, 2007, when Drew Hancock, who at the time was the majority owner, president, CEO, was contemplating a transition, keep in mind this is a year or two away from the Great Recession. Bloom was about a $40 million a year contractor located in Winston-Salem, North Carolina, operating largely within that small geographic market. Fast forward to today, they're now $400 million in revenue statewide, work in a variety of vertical market sectors and a variety of different geographies. So we're going to talk both to Drew and to Mike Lancaster, who is now the president and CEO, at the time was a 26-year-old project manager, now the majority owner of the business. Well, Drew and Mike, thanks so much for taking time to join us and welcome to the show. Great to be here. Thanks, Scott. So, and also I understand that congratulations are in order. So it sounds like you're approaching a hundred years in business. That's correct. Yeah, this May will celebrate a hundred years. Not many firms can say that. That's rarefied air. Congrats. One of the things that we're going to be getting into here in just a moment is just the ownership transition and the management succession process that you all went through. And I'm really curious to hear from both of you. Uh, Drew, going back to 2007, I think it was, so about 16 years ago, at that time, you were president and CEO, uh, roughly 90% plus owner of Frank L. Bloom Construction. Uh, Mike, I believe, if, if correct me if I'm wrong, 26 years old at the time, project manager, not too far removed from NC State. At that time, we're not an owner uh, in the business, and we're kind of getting your sea legs under you. So is that, if I got that roughly, roughly right? That sets the stage. I believe back then, you all were doing about $40 million in revenue, and today, I believe that number is slightly more than that. Mike, I'll let you give a little bit more background on the business. So currently, we're a $400 million commercial contractor that spans the state of North Carolina with projects from the coast all the way to the mountains, uh, operating in a variety of market sectors from higher education, healthcare, senior care, certainly a, a thriving business that had humble beginnings and uh, looking forward to our second century, as you said. And just a, a little bit of further context, I believe this is the fourth ownership group and the third uh, transition that you all have gone through over your history. That's correct, yeah. Well, maybe I'd love to dive in there and, and a little bit more to, to try to compress it down to what's happened in the last 100 years. So I think there's been a range of experiences as ownership has transitioned from one generation to the next, but there's been some hiccups along the way and some surprises. And I'd love, Drew, maybe if you would just walk us through your experience and your perspective on some of the transitions that preceded this one that we're gonna get into here in a moment. Yeah, so Scott, you're you're right. There have been three transitions, uh, four generations. Uh, the first transition was sudden death. Frank Bloom, the founder, had a heart attack, and three days later, he was gone. That's not the way to plan a transition, but we survived. Uh, we survived because of the people involved in the business at the time. Uh, we survived because the customers had confidence in those people, and so we picked up and, and went on, and the Bloom family themselves was dangerously exposed to finishing the work uh, and they knew it and uh, just a, a situation that was very, very precarious that ultimately worked out. And then the second transition was um, what I would describe as uh, take a note and leave. Um, 
the second generation essentially offered the third generation uh, ownership in the company and the third generation decided that uh, they would sign a 20-year note in one case and a 10-year note in the other. And the second generation leaders uh, left in, in fairly short order um, after that transition. Uh, so those were the two uh, that were, we survived uh, and they were different uh, than the one that we're going to talk about today. I'm curious, having observed those uh, transitions, what did you want to make sure that you did with this transition that might be a little bit different from what you'd seen? Two things. Uh, certainly with the first one, ours was plan, plan, plan. Um, you know, you, you can be a part of a transit. You can be a part of planning a transition or not, but the transition is going to happen, whether it's sudden death, whether it's an external sale, an internal sale or shutting a company down. Um, it's going to happen and you can be a part of planning it or not. So plan, 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 which is one of our core values at Bloom was was paramount. And then my partners and I, um, I was the youngest of three. Uh, I was in my early 50s, had both partners about five years older than me, and one had made it very clear that he wanted to exit at 60. So that was kind of the impetus of, of me getting engaged early, which in hindsight was was wonderful. But the objective there um, for us was to say, stay in the company. Uh, we weren't finished yet. Um, in my early 50s and my partners in their mid 50s, uh, we wanted to stay in and be a part of the transition. So those were our objectives that were different and things that we'd learned from the first two. Thanks, Drew. I'd love to um, transition now, Mike. As, as Drew talked about objectives, We'd love to hear a little bit more from you about what your objectives were back then as you were thinking about the opportunity to buy into this firm. Well, I was 26 years old, Scott, so um, I would say I was a little <laughs> bit naive at that time about uh, objectives, but I did I did think I wanted to be a part of something great, you know, and build upon what already existed. And I thought we really, you know, we had something great. That sounds simplistic, but that was probably it, the, you know, the, the, the root of it. I just want to be a part of something great, be a part of a team that could certainly take something that was already in great shape and and leave it better than than i found it and then obviously wanted to you know get in that hopefully have a good outcome professionally and personally for myself but uh being a part of a, a team that was um was being a part of a great team was sort of first and foremost for me that's great i'd love to talk a little bit more about just the process that you all went through really from both your perspectives so drew from your perspective at time at that time again you were again 90 percent owner essentially selling the business uh, transitioning the business from yourself and your other couple of partners to mike and a group of other incoming partners and, and mike from your perspective at that time you know what you recall from the process I guess, Drew, maybe to start with you um, at that point, as you started to contemplate this transition, what what was the process you went through? And, and we'll take it from there. Scott, I think uh, uh, sort of underlining a couple of things that you and Mike have already pointed out. Um, and that is age, uh, the age that we were when we started this. Um, I was in my early 50s. And Mike, you had to be older than 26. Yes, you were. You, yes, <laughs> an old soul. <laughs> but, but, but here we've got you know. So the long term nature of this planning, I think, is is really important. Um, and, and again, our story is our story. It's one data point. Every one of these transitions is personal. It's you know, there's a ton of discernment that goes into how you want to do this. Um, and and hopefully, speaking from our experience uh, on this podcast with you, Scott. 
uh, sort of helps clear the fog so other can others can see their answers. But um, our answers are, are are one data point that worked for us. Um, so, uh, sort of back to the objectives and starting of the process. Uh, the the summary of that is something else you've already said, and that is a hundred years and a second century. Um, you asked me, Scott, uh, early in 2007, maybe it was 2006, um, a really compelling question that started this process. And that is, uh, we were sitting at dinner and you said, Drew, when you drive by Bloom, Bloom's office on the first day that you do not pull into that driveway for a full-time job, what do you want to see? And that question really sparked the thought process and sparked the plan. And remember, I'm in my early 50s and I'm going strong and loving what I do, um, just loving to build, love love to build and love to be a part of an organization and a team, as Mike was saying earlier. It's the, the work of my life and something I believe strongly believe I was born to do. So um, so back to how do we do this? Well, it's it's either sell it externally or sell it internally. And, you know, we, if we sell it internally, we can stay in it. And uh, neither of my partners at the time wanted to exit, nor did I. And you and FMI had this plan of what if you, would you consider this? Would you consider staying in and, and selling over a, a, a length of time? And, and sort of that was the beginning of the process, if you will. Just to just to continue on that string for a moment. So as you thought about staying in and participating over a long period of time, part of that is getting comfortable with the fact that you're going to essentially be buying yourself out with your own money, which is something we talk a lot about. So how did you get comfortable with that? You know, what did that look like? I've used that term before in presentations, uh, but I believe that my experience, our experience proves that statement can be and should be a misnomer if plans like ours are executed as well as they can be. That starts with we were a $40 million company and now Bloom is a $400 plus million company. Um, you know, I, I the, the challenge of doing that uh, and being a part of that growth, if you will, um, in a it, it really was my investment in this plan that paid back to me both financially as well as career satisfaction wise. Uh, this plan paid back to me in, in, in multiples. Um, it, it was one plus one equal 11 or it was, you know, five times one equals 51 or however you want to say it. Uh, but strengthening the company through this ownership transition what lit a fire that was the most satisfying work of my career. So it really wasn't buying, I, yeah, it was buying myself out, out without my own money, if you really want to look at, the, at it that way. But, you know, a lot of people think that, uh, see this business as um, you sell the work and you count the money. Well, we all know that there's a ton of risk and uncertainty to navigate between selling a job and banking the money. And so, you know, was it my money really? Well, I, you know, our team generated that money and uh, I invested in this process and and invested in the next generation. And that came back to me, as I say, in multiples. Thank you, Drew. So go ahead, Mike. 
I don't know that we ever evaluated the, I'm sure I guess you evaluate the scenario as buyer seller, but it was more, you know, a teammate effort. I mean, Drew and I spent right. 10, 12 years sort of in the, in the longer than that, I guess, in a, in a teammate scenario. So to me, buyer seller implies a transaction that you sort of, you execute it and you're finished. And in our case, you know, we were teammates. I, I, and we picked a good, a great teammate with Drew. And I hope he'd say the same thing, you know, so, you know, we formed a good, a good team for a, for a period of time that allowed the, the transaction, the buyer seller piece to happen. But I, we just never really, I guess in the early phase, you, you, you view it as a buy sell transaction that sort of goes in a drawer and the rest of the time you walk out, you know, you walk in the office and your teammates. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's a great way to put it. I mean, I oftentimes say I never had more fun nor more satisfaction uh, than living this plan. And part of that fun and satisfaction was being a part of a, a great team. And, and Mike led that team and that was just extremely satisfying. And uh, well, Mike, thank you for the clarification. I think you're spot on in terms of it. It's, it's teammates ideally locking, you know, arm in arm to kind of walk through this transition journey together. Um, as I talk about seller and buyer, just for those that that weren't party to it, uh, just to kind of illustrate how the how the math worked. And one of the things that that we always find a little curious is we'll, we'll field inbound calls from firms that are or leaders that are contemplating a transition. And they're, they're oft, oftentimes the first thing they want to talk about is the math and the transaction and what's my business worth and what am I, what am I going to get? And our counsel is always, well, the math can be worked out on a napkin. It's really about the people. And if you don't have the people, you don't have anything to talk about. And that's, that's true either whether it's third-party sale or whether it's internal transition. And I think something that I've observed uh, for you all over this transition is you had those three ingredients. You had people, uh, you had the right people, you were profitable business and have been so for the entirety. Uh, and you had time on your side and that, you know, Drew, as you talked about, it was plan, plan, plan. So it was methodical planning and what are the, and what are the scenarios that we can think about and anticipate? What are the unforeseens that we can't anticipate at this point? You know, and you tweaked along the way, but it was very thoughtful, very methodical. And, and just listening to both of you, uh, there seems to be a lot of uh, legacy and values, and I want to be part of something great, or I want to leave behind something great, which I think, in my mind, you know, really, if you have those elements, most any transition plan can work. How, how did, I, I'm curious, you both lived it. Um, how does what I just shared stack up with kind of how you guys, what you all experienced? So I'll jump in there first. Um, don't ever change your response to that inbound call, Scott. <laughs> uh, absolute bullseye. Uh, yes, we had people, profits, and time, and and those were part of our plan. Uh, but I could summarize that as people, people, people. I mean, it's if it, it that's where it all starts. Uh, the 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 numbers, as you say, you can work it out on the back of a napkin, and and you know you can be directionally correct. But it, it is literally about the people, people, people. Yeah, and I think it's much of the you know, we labeled it OTMS, ownership transition management succession. You know, you could call it leadership succession, but there was a, a point in time when you focused on the ownership transition piece. And again, I just feel like that sort of went in a, the shares have to change hands, but if you don't, if you don't create a, a system and a culture where you're transitioning uh, and cultivating 
leadership uh, to what end? You know, you have, if you haven't built enduring leadership to what end? So I, I, we spent as much time on the leadership succession side, you know, 10x what we spent on the ownership transition side. You know, that was a end of the year writing a check. And then it, it went back to the leadership succession side. Mike, that's a great segue. I'd love for your perspective on what that looked like for you all. The leadership transition, the management succession, getting people ready to take up the mantle for whatever roles they were going to play in the future. Once, you know, Drew and his partners were either less involved or at some point no longer involved. I'm not sure who coined the phrase. I, I don't know if that Scott was you or Chris or Drew, but Drew would always, uh, Drew always said, never go alone. And so it, you know, I and others in, in my generation of ownership were shadows. And so, you know, to me, that's, for, you know, for me, that's the best way to learn is be put in the fire in um, situations. So you, you learn by uh, seeing and doing and, and uh, understanding how Drew handles this particular situation or how Mark Gilbert handles, handles this situation. And so I, that was a big, as big a part of our, leadership succession, I'd say, is anything, was that Drew just was purposeful about taking us and exposing us to any and everything, whether that was a community organization and, and um, you know, building up your network and, and your influence or business decisions or uh, human resources decisions. Um, you know, we were just exposed to a lot. I would add to that, uh, that Plans evolve, people evolve, people live into their potential. And we saw in my generation an opportunity to provide leadership to the next generation through that never go alone that, that they needed at that time, but would not need later. So, so the best gift that we could give, if you will, if you see it that way, um, uh, from a servant leadership standpoint or, or however you want to frame that was um, let's do this now to help them so that, and we know that they will not need it later. And, and obviously they've done exceptionally well with it. And, and I couldn't be more proud of Mike and his team and all that they've accomplished through that. You know, we're, we're talking about leadership transition and getting, getting folks ready. I'm curious uh, from both your perspectives, Mike, I'll start with you. What, uh, what are your biggest lessons learned? From the process, obviously, you're you're in the process now where you're president, CEO, majority shareholder, and are continually thinking about incoming shareholders and who's worthy. How do we make these decisions? So, curious, what lessons you took from the previous process that you've applied to this kind of where you are now? Yeah, you know, Drew's Drew's dad always said it's a people project. Uh, it was back then. It still is today. It's a people project. Construction's a people business. This transition, you know, our transition, future transitions are, are people projects and building high performing teams, you know, being, being able, being committed to that, making making your team function in a high performing manner just makes transitions smooth. You know, the flexibility of the plan, the plan was flexible for us. I mean, the intent and the rules never change, which I think is important. You see a lot of a lot of plans go wrong in that aspect where the rules change and our, our rules, rules and intent never change, but the plan allowed flexibility. Because you know, construction, as we all know, is a cyclical, difficult business in itself. Life throws you curves, and so the ability to be flexible in the plan was was paramount. Say more about uh, you know the curveballs that you all experienced. I think there's a lot there that would be great to unpack. 
Oh, well, uh, you know, we started in, I guess, 06, 07, and then you know, the the world came unglued for uh, for uh, you know, 08, 09, 2008, 9, and 10 were not banner years for many businesses, certainly not uh, construction businesses. There were years where, where we were having to be really tight and worried about where the work's going to come from because there was not a lot of work out there in those years. So the ability to be flexible um, in that regard was, was, I know speaking personally, that was important to me. Nobody could have you know, seen that coming. How about on the uh, on the people side? I think that's a one of the most important questions in this process, um, as well as one of the most beneficial things of this process. Uh, you told us many times that we could this this uh, plan would allow us to, so to speak, put the dogs in the woods and see if they could hunt while we were still there. Um, and so, going slow, observing. Um, knowing that working in a construction company versus owning the risk of a construction company are two entirely different things. Right. And you need, you need people who are willing to do willing and willing and ready to do both. Um, and so you're looking for traits all the time, uh, sort of shareholder traits. And, you know, we, we boiled some of those down. Some of the phrases we used were um, we're looking for the meat eaters in the litter who has the eye of the tiger, who understands that leadership is taken, not given. Um, you know, you got to take hold of it. You, you can't just be anointed, so to speak. And, and then, you know, who is confident enough and has a risk profile to where they're willing to put up their house when things are going into the toilet, as, as Mike says. You know, this whole idea of uh, having a spirited conversation around the kitchen table and you and your family are willing to be exposed um, to that kind of risk. And, and to, you know, it's, it's a very real thing that uh, you, you just got to making sure that everybody around the table is, um, is cut out of that cloth and, and wants to do that uh, in their very core is a really, really important part of this process. And when you have to back up and and say you may may have made a mistake and had somebody in the wrong seat on the bus, then you 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 know you got to acknowledge that um, all, all through uh, a, a heart for service to all the families that depend on the company. Right, and it, it's certainly not a value judgment in those situations, right? Because it happens. I mean, risk and indemnification, as you're talking about, is a great it's a great equalizer. I mean, it does kind of uh, separate um, you know the differences. And then you know, think about our plan, the timing of our plan uh, in, in hindsight, 2007, I've got two partners, third generation, we make these decisions, these fourth generation is gets up and going and so on and so forth. And then suddenly my two partners exit very quickly. You never know what's around the corner, uh, one for personal health and one for family health reasons. And so um I oftentimes say that uh, having this plan in place kind of saved me, saved my bacon in a lot of ways. Uh, you know, all I needed in the middle of that deep, dark recession when the world fell apart uh, and my two, my right arm, my left arm that I've been with for 20 years were no longer there. All I needed to do to get energy and re-energize was to go down the hall and had a, a cadre of young people that were just fired up to conquer the world. and. And by golly, they did. 
And uh, that was exciting and, and that was reassuring. So there, there's never any substitute for um, strengthening an organization uh, and investing in the people of that organization, however you choose to do that. Mike, you know, you talked about the the timing and and, and life timing t tends to be everything, but you were in the process of becoming an owner for the very first time. As, as you said, the world was coming unglued, at least from a financial markets perspective and the, and the global uh, economies. I'm curious, what were you thinking back then and what helped you get through that process? I think uh, having uh, wise counsel with uh, Drew and and Mark Gilbert, who had been through um, you know, other recessions in the, you know, you know, Mark had come from Ohio in the seven, late seventies with, uh, you know, we think we have high interest rates now and you hear him tell the stories. Right. You know, so he, he had seen the dark side and, and, um, you know, it said that this, this too shall pass and sort of keeping your eye on the, uh, eye on the prize and keep doing the blocking and tackling. So I think wise, um, you know, wise counsel, was a was a part of it but certainly you know it was a it, it certainly shaped my risk profile and who i am today going through that uh if, if you're asking that i mean that was a um you, you'd always heard construction's a cyclical risk risky business well that was a, a cycle like no one had ever seen so it was right. a, it, it uh, certainly opened your eyes to the, the cyclical side of the business so um Along those lines, I'm curious, how has it shaped your risk profile? What do you think you, how do you approach the business today that you think has been shaped by that, by that past experience? Probably more mindful of, of market diversification due to that, uh, due to that recession. I don't, you know, we were probably not as diversified uh, as we needed to be, to be able to withstand some market fluctuations. Uh, so very much mindful of uh, of diversification, um, understanding that uh, you know where our individual market sectors are headed, what what props them up, what keeps them viable in the future, current today, and in the future. Um, and sometimes you can get caught in a trap of of riding a uh, successful wave and ignore diversification, and then everything changes on a it changes on a dime. So. Um, you know, try to be very well diversified. Sometimes in the face of chasing high profits on a concentration concentration of risk, just remain remaining diligent and being diversified. What, what's the old phrase? Never let a good recession go to waste. So you, you certainly took advantage of that character builder back then. So we've talked a lot about some of the ingredients for success and and what went well, uh, what you would do again, just to take the, um, the flip side to that, we'd love both of your perspectives on what would you do differently if you had it to do over again? And Drew, maybe I'll start with you and Mike come back to you. Nothing. <laughs> so, so first and foremost, uh, Scott, I have absolutely no regrets. Um, and even, and you put that question out to me a week ago or so, and I've really been scratching my head about that. Uh, you know, if you can start out in this industry uh, a week out of high school, digging ditches and pushing a wheelbarrow for a summer job and end up where I am um, in life, both professionally and personally, um, the overwhelming sense of who you are is grateful. So, uh, again, first and foremost, I have no regrets. Um, having said that, um, you know, one of the 
so one of the things I do now is I've got lots of things that I do now, but one of them is help to teach a class at Wake Forest uh, titled Successful Private Companies. And a few of the things that I tell my 20-something um, students at Wake Forest about their careers and about leading a company um, is, first, uh, if you have an opportunity to go to work with family out of college, don't. Uh, and what I mean by that is, is go somewhere else first and stand on your own two feet and make something of yourself and be recruited back into the business with your family for the value that you bring, not just as a recent graduate with the right last name. And then when you do decide to go back into that business, um, or if you do with family, report to a non-family mentor. Uh, I had good fortune of doing both those things, and they those things create a lifetime of confidence for yourself, as well as a lifetime of credibility uh, among your peers and your coworkers. And then the Second uh, piece of advice that I give my students is uh, make sure you learn your business uh, from the ground up by paying your dues, uh, doing the equivalent of digging a ditch in your industry, whatever that is. And Mike referred to that um, sort of as the core of who we are as a company. Um, but also, in addition to that, I would tell my 25-year-old self to take time earlier to work on the business in addition to working in the business. Um, it was through our uh, first strategic plan about 20 years ago with FMI that we really started spending serious time and effort working on our business. Uh, and that's how we started to create an enduring business. So those are some of my lessons learned, if you will. I'm not a Monday morning quarterback person. You know, what we did got us to let us to where we are today, which is a pretty good, pretty good spot. So. I don't know if there's anything that I would, you know, that I would change. I think, um, you know, one of the things that made it so successful too is, is generosity. And you see so many businesses like ours where the, uh, the founder, principal, whatever, um, in the prior gener generation worries so much about getting a, a multiple, as you said, Scott, an inflated number and, you know, then the rules change or whatever, but, um, you know, I think a person that's generous gets usually gets rewarded, and Drew's one of the most generous people that I know. So um, uh, I think that it was just I wouldn't change a thing. It was a uh, it was a good ride, and continues to be a good ride. Something to be said for that. Um, well, kind of building on that, just to transition to um, we've got a number of folks that are out there. If you just look at demographics, you know, baby boomer generation is in the process latter stages of transitioning, you know, contemplating a transition, whether that's third party, whether it's internal or, or what, what have you. Um, if you had to narrow down your advice or counsel to the folks that are contemplating a transition, I guess, Drew, I'll go to you first. And then Mike for same question, but with a little bit of a twist. Um, we'll love your perspective on those contemplating, you know, coming into ownership. But Drew, starting with you, what would you, what would you say to, uh, to those that are thinking about some form of a transition? So Scott, Scott uh, that starts and started for me and, and the, the place that I start with everybody who asks me about transition is to discern what you really want for yourself. Um, you know, this is your life's work and starting with, uh, with yourself and what do you want for your family? What do you want for yourself? What do you want for your company? 
Um, that question of when you drive by and don't pull in on the first day, what do you want to see? And I spent um, time, two, two uh, sets of times with uh, the coach, actually investing a lot of work in that. Uh, and that uh, is a process that I oftentimes uh, recommend to others to really, that's not a go off for a weekend and come back with an answer kind of thing. Uh, at least it wasn't for me. And what I found in that process uh, and that work that I did with the coach was two things. One was if you decide to stay in and be a part of the transition, which is not for everybody, uh, but it is enormous. It can be enormously rewarding. The first thing is find a role inside the company that adds value, keeps you relevant, and does not cast a shadow. And there's a whole, you know, series of podcasts on that kind of discernment. Uh, but the second thing is work on something and find things that will pull you out of your company to avoid, as our partner, Mark Gilbert, said many times to avoid staying around until you smell bad. So, so, uh, you know, and there's another uh, whole, you know, there's a whole bookshelf of books that uh, talk about the next chapter and finding, finding things that give you as much juice and satisfaction as being a contractor did. That's not easy. And it's frightening for a lot of people to think about that. Uh, but those two things, essentially find a role that adds value, keep, keeps you relevant uh, and work on those things intentionally that will ultimately pull you out. We couldn't say it better ourselves. I think nothing dampens a transition more than someone in your position at that time who is not ready to move on, who doesn't have something that gives them energy outside of the business. That tends to stagnate. Um, the incoming uh, leaders tend to get concerned, get frustrated, possibly move on. And so uh, very wise counsel. I'm, I'm curious if you could say more about that, just about, I know one of the things that, that you worked with your coach on was just uh, tracking your time in a very unique way. So I'm curious, um, I always love this story, but I'd love for you to tell it and kind of how you, what, what she counseled you to do. Yeah. So Abby Donnelly, my coach uh, had me keep my time for about six weeks and she asked me to rate my time from one to five. One were the things that I would uh, rather be beat with a stick than have to do. And fives, uh, the fives were the things that I would do for free. Um, I didn't tell Mike that I'd do them for free, but you know, you know, the, the things that, <laughs> I'm that I'm talking about, those things that really give you a lot of juice. And so what I was able to do was craft my job of fives inside Bloom that added value and kept me relevant. And that was focused on people and talent. So when, you know, I had a lane that I went to, um, I stayed in that lane. I, I, when Mike was named the, the, the next president of Bloom, uh, he moved into my office. I moved into an office that was as far away from his that I could get. Um, and when people came into my office initially, you know, like they had for years, for decades, and started asking me questions, my favorite response was, have you talked to Mike about that yet? <laughs> and so, you know, turn them around and redirect them back to Mike. But but this whole people and talent uh, focus that I now have taken beyond Bloom to Wake Forest, uh, to the Center for Private Business at Wake Forest is just, you know, it's my my job of five. So I, I was able to 
create a job of fives and Mike helped me create a job of fives to support him inside Bloom, him and his team and his generation. And then I've taken that uh, after my exit on to other work uh, at Wayne Forest. So it's it's been a great ride. Mike, how about you? Same question. So as you think about counseling somebody who's considering uh, coming into an ownership position, buying into an ownership position inside of a firm that they already work with, uh, what uh, what advice would you give? If you want to be a part of an enduring company, um, don't evaluate the scenario as buying and selling, but you know, being a part of a team. Where do you mesh into mesh into a team? You know, making sure you evaluate your teammates that you're on the journey with and and choose wisely. But um, you know, look at, looking at it as a, as a as a team effort and picking picking teammates as opposed to buying a buyer seller transaction. That's a great point. And as you're as you're looking for teammates to kind of lock arms with to become owners in the future, what are some of the things that you look for, and that your partners look for at this stage? Leadership, you know, regardless of the role or position that they're in, um, they're influential. You know, they can move people to action with their influence. Uh, entrepreneurship, you know, somebody that can cast a cast a vision, can create an opportunity and go. To seize that opportunity. Those are probably the two most simplistic things that uh, they say. They say easy and do hard, though. But those are two simplistic things that I look for. So I'm curious, um, Mike, as you think about you know the day to day running of the business and overall governance, how is how has the governance process changed and evolved over time over the last ten years or so? It's it's much more. Uh, the term I'd use probably knights of the round of the round table model than before. I mean, we we have more uh, more shareholders than than Drew's generation, um, so that's one difference. It's you know when I started, we didn't have an outside advisory board. We do now. We're in a bit of a reboot with uh, with them after a pause for COVID, but we try to structure that as close as we can to a to a true fiduciary board to maximize the benefit that we get from them. Uh, so those would probably be the the two things that I would point to the most. Well, that's great. Well, I think Drew already answered this question earlier. So, Mike, I'll ask you. So, if you, um, curious, if you take yourself back to that 26 year old or maybe 25 years old, so what, what piece of advice would you give yourself at that stage, whether it's related to ownership transfer, management section or, or not? Just what piece of advice would you give yourself? I would probably tell myself to enjoy the ride a little more. You know, be more present in the moments. Um, you know, that's something I try to do better now. But I, I remember one of our old advisory board members, Dudley Humphrey, at his he was being recognized at a retirement. He said it'll never be as good as it is right now, and that that has always always been a phrase that has stuck with me. So, and just enjoying the enjoying the ride. Um, it was it was a it was a fun ride. Continues to be a fun ride, and making sure you just pause and enjoy the enjoy the journey that you're on. So a phrase I've heard a lot is be, be where your feet are, yep. which is uh, great advice, very hard to execute. Well, gentlemen, both thank you very much for taking the time to do this. I really enjoyed the conversation. It's always great to catch up with you. And congratulations on a great transition in 100 years. Thank you. Likewise, Scott. Yeah, thank, thank you both, uh, Scott and Mike. Uh, both of you have been key players in, in getting Bloom to that second century, and I appreciate uh, both of you, who you are and what you've done to accomplish that. Thanks, Drew. It's been a lot of fun.
Thank you for listening, and please join us again next month for a conversation with Rob Strobel, CEO of Lithco Contracting, for a masterclass on geographic expansion. For just a little bit of context, Lithco today is the second largest concrete firm in the U.S., approaching $1.5 billion in revenue and close to 20 branch offices across the U.S. and counting. <laughs>